This is an Our Americana Podcast Network production. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that True Crime Bullshit has a new website. Go to truecrimebullshit.com to peruse Israel's timeline, read about the NamUs 44, check out all the featured music, and review maps of Israel's travels discussed in each episode. And now, on to the show. And I don't, you know, we're not going to go into all of that today, but basically kind of the, that kind of information is the kind of information that's going to be helpful in making some of the decisions and in, in down the road. You're talking about history. History, yeah, criminals, um, I, I mean, it could be, it could be anything. The you, stuff you, I didn't get caught for. Yeah. <laughs> because you, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I got you. You but, know what um, your history is, we don't. So when right. you're thinking about kind of my what's going to be important. My concern with um, his, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed in our discussions, there's not a lot of stuff left from the things I've done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's actually more in the cases we've discussed than there ever has been before. So my concern with talking about stuff that happened in the past is that the investigation of those things is going to drag things out longer. But I am willing to discuss about, you know, certain things when the time comes, mm-hmm. whatever it takes to get the stuff on paper to show that, you know, I mean, I do it. I, there is a history of this stuff. It goes back a long time. Um, it's not something I've ever talked to anyone about, and there's not, I've never had a partner or mm-hmm. an accomplice or whatever. I just, and, you know, but there is, you know, there's stuff I will talk about relating to that. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, the stuff predating the uh, Courier case, I'll just not talk about right away because mm-hmm. I still want to think about it a little bit and decide how. Uh, I, I I'm not really convinced that this needs to be made into much bigger of a deal <laughs> than, than we have to. I mean, at least from my perspective. So right. This is True Crime Bullshit. I'm your host, Josh Hallmark, and this is a serialized story of Israel Keys. Two weeks after Israel Keys bought his boat, a boat that he told friends, family, and investigators didn't operate, despite Tammy's ex-husband Joe's claims that it ran just fine. A woman disappeared from nearby Eugene, Oregon. Wendy DeHoop's disappearance didn't garner much media attention, presumably because of her racial makeup. Like Tammy, Wendy was black and Native American. Which begs a question which has been on my mind since I started researching Keys. And the question needs to be prefaced with a debate. The past few episodes have focused on Keys and the lies he told. And while we've only identified four of his 11-plus victims, we can gather a bit of information about the stories he's told regarding his lack of a victim profile, 
and his geography-spanning crimes. The common mythology of Keyes is that he always abducted a victim from one state, murdered them in another, and then buried them in a third. And while I do believe that this was his preferred MO, his known victims would dictate otherwise. Samantha Koenig was abducted, murdered, and buried, all within a 37-mile radius in a single state. She was murdered just four miles from where she was abducted. The couriers were abducted, murdered, and buried all within a three-mile radius in a single state. Their bodies were abandoned at the murder site. Deborah Feldman is the only outlier here, and even that hasn't been publicly confirmed. We know she was abducted from Hackensack, New Jersey. That's all we actually know. According to Keyes, she was murdered in a second state and then buried along the Raquette River in Tupper Lake, New York. But according to the information made public, there's no actual proof that Keyes did in fact murder her in a second state nor bury her remains in Tupper Lake. As far as the public knows, her remains have never been recovered. The second bit of information we can glean from his confirmed victims, information more pertinent in the case of Wendy DeHoop, is that they were all white. The general belief about serial killers, going back to when serial killer became part of the English lexicon, is that they rarely target victims outside of their own race. And if you use some of the more well-known serial killer cases, like Bundy, Raider, Gacy, and presumably Wayne Williams, this tracks, and it would align with Key's known victimology. And even with his background, he was raised by white supremacists, an upbringing he would quite quickly and severely rebel against. So it seemed reasonable, based on this general belief about serial killers, that Keyes didn't target racial minorities out of rebellion and or some sense of white guilt. However, According to criminal profiler Pat Brown, that general knowledge is incorrect. Here's what Pat had to say about the question of race and victimology amongst serial killers. The misconception that serial killers only target within their race came from poor FBI research. The fact is, serial killers rarely care what race their victims are. They target victims who are accessible and easy to control and kill. Because people used to live in one-race communities, and most serial killers kill near home, their victims would be of the same race. But now, with more mixed-race communities, we see more serial killers' victims being of any race. And this couldn't apply to Keyes more. Israel Keyes was a lie-in-wait predator who lived in mixed communities and traveled extensively to commit his crimes. And when you apply that information to his confirmed victims, it actually makes sense. Vermont is the whitest state in America. 96.2% of the state is white, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Samantha Koenig was a victim of circumstance. He went to her coffee shop. He stalked her. He specifically targeted her. And Deborah Feldman was a victim of opportunity, presumably. She lived a vulnerable lifestyle on the periphery and was someone who, quote unquote, would not be missed. In these cases, race was more likely a coincidence than a victimology.
Which brings us back to Wendy DeHoop, and, not to mention, Alice Ida Looney. And, speaking of coincidence, there are quite a few in Wendy's disappearance and how it could relate to Keyes. Wendy disappeared on April 22nd of 2005 from Eugene, Oregon. More specifically, she was last seen in the Home Depot parking lot on Green Acres Road. According to the Charlie Project, Wendy was dropping her husband off at his job at Home Depot and was scheduled to drive from there to her job at the Georgia Pacific Manufacturing Company just 25 miles away in Halsey, Oregon. Due to a lack of media coverage, there is a severe lack of information in Wendy's case, along with quite a bit of conflicting information. First of all, it's unclear if anyone other than her husband saw Wendy in the Home Depot parking lot that morning. Secondly, and more troubling, there are very mixed reports about who actually reported Wendy missing. Some say it was her boss. Others indicate it was her boss and her boyfriend. Some outlets have reported that the man reported as her boyfriend was actually just a close friend. Some reports indicate that it was her husband who reported her missing. And then there are reports that state her boss called her husband to report her missing, and her husband ignored her boss's concern. I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request, but have yet to receive a response. And while many of those varying reports could suggest that her husband might be involved, there are other reports suggesting otherwise. Additionally, her husband has never been named as a suspect in her disappearance. On April 28th, six days after Wendy disappeared, a man found Wendy's purse while walking his dog. Strangely, rather than turning it into the police, he dropped it off at a nearby convenience store. And upon investigation, police found that Wendy's wallet was missing from the purse. Four days later, that same man led authorities to Wendy's 1990 Toyota Corolla, which had gone missing with her. The Corolla had been parked in a wooded neighborhood six miles south of the Home Depot, and in the opposite direction from where she was supposed to be traveling for work. There was no sign of Wendy at the scene, and she has not been seen or heard from since the morning of the 22nd. So, where was Keyes when Wendy disappeared? Well, as you might expect, that's unclear. April 22nd was a Friday. And as we've previously covered, at that point in his life, Keyes was generally taking long weekends to commit crimes in the Washington State area. Additionally, he admitted that after several years at his job with the Macaw Tribe, he was able to disappear for a day without anyone really noticing. Eugene is about 400 miles, or a seven and a half hour drive, from Nia Bay. So in order to hypothetically abduct Wendy at some point between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m., Keyes would need to leave Nia Bay at around 11 p.m. on Thursday night, at the very latest. Which wouldn't have been a problem, because Keyes was living alone at the time. He had partial custody of Sarah, but has admitted to dropping her off with babysitters and Tammy whenever he was up to no good. As he put it, he had very low accountability in the years between his breakup with Tammy and his move to Alaska. 
Now, there are several reasons to think Keyes could be involved in Wendy's disappearance. In the weeks preceding, Keyes took several solo trips to go canoeing in Washington area lakes, specifying that on March 1st, he found an island campsite while out canoeing. And as we know, Keyes' fishing, hunting, and canoeing trips were generally predicated on finding places to rape and murder people. Additionally, he bought Joe's boat with the intent of using it to access some of these island campsites, which he would eventually reference in discussion of several Washington state murders. So it's clear Keyes was, at a minimum, scouting out murder sites in the weeks before Wendy disappeared. There's also the Home Depot factor. As we know, Keyes used a Home Depot parking lot to stalk Samantha Koenig, and the Home Depot Wendy was last seen in is just several blocks from a lake, the Willamette River, a quarry, and a gravel pit. And then there's Fern Ridge Lake, a 30-foot deep lake just 17 miles from where Wendy was last seen. What's interesting about Fern Ridge Lake is not only its proximity to Eugene, but the fact that it has three remote islands. In fact, if you drive south from Nia Bay, it appears to be only the second lake you would come across that has both boat access and sizable islands. And while we can't confirm Keyes was ever at Fern Ridge Lake, we can confirm he was just one and a half miles west at some point in the spring of 2004 or 2005. According to a source and interviews with several people close to Keyes, he and a woman he was dating went wine tasting in Oregon in the spring of 2004 or 2005, depending on who you ask. And Lavelle Vineyards was one of few wineries mentioned by name. Lavelle Vineyards is less than a mile and a half from Fern Ridge Lake. Another winery mentioned? Sylvan Ridge Winery. If you drive from either downtown Eugene or Nia Bay to Sylvan Ridge, you would take Lorraine Highway, the road Wendy's car was found abandoned along. Now let's take a look at Keyes' various confessions. He admitted to killing two separate people in Washington state between getting his boat and moving to Alaska. He indicated that one of those victims was submerged in Lake Crescent using anchors he made out of milk jugs. And while it can't be confirmed, he also said he generally abducted victims from one state, then murdered or buried them in another. And according to everyone interviewed, Keyes included, he began reupholstering his boat in the weeks after he bought it. And a search of the boat found blood evidence beneath the new upholstery, meaning someone was killed on that boat prior to Keyes reupholstering it. So, in all likelihood, someone was murdered on that boat between April 10th and May 1st. Keyes also seemed to indicate that the Lake Crescent victim was a woman. Now, there's only one unsolved disappearance that occurred within 500 miles of Nia Bay in the three weeks following Israel's purchase of the boat. Wendy to Hoop. And if you take a look at the NamUs 44, there's two interesting missing persons cases that come up. 
Ray Gricar disappeared the same week Wendy did. And we know Keyes never searched for his victims by name. He searched for them by date or by area. The second is Shana Ashley Kirkpatrick, who disappeared from Portland, Oregon, on April 4th of 2001. One of the most important parts of investigating Israel Keys is looking for the small things, the things we often overlook or can't see right away. And one of my favorite ways to get into that mindset is by playing June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game where you play as June Parker and travel back in time to the Roaring Twenties to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. In June's journey, you'll travel the world looking for clues and piecing together a scandalous family secret. And as you put your detective skills to good use, you'll also put your design skills to good use as you build and renovate a luxurious family estate. June's journey has it all, mystery, history, danger, and even a little bit of romance, which I found myself very invested in. I love it so much I'm already on chapter 84. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This season, in addition to Keyes' straightforward lies, we've also spent quite a bit of time discussing his uncanny ability to be two or even three different places at the same time. It's something I've obsessed over without ever really coming to any logical explanation. But it was in researching the Wendy DeHoop case that something jumped out at me I'd never noticed before. In an interview with Denise, the woman Keyes dated before Kimberly, she mentions a trip he took to Pennsylvania while they were dating. She told investigators that while Keyes was on that trip, he sent her a postcard from Eastern Maine, where his family's maple farm and cabin are located. Now, this is the only real mention of Keyes ever being in Pennsylvania. Which is interesting when you consider that seven of the Namus 44 disappeared from Pennsylvania or within 20 miles of the state. But what's more interesting about this seemingly innocuous aside is that she actually still had the postcard. And when she retrieved it upon the FBI's request, they noted that it was postmarked October 4th, 2004. And yes, Keyes was actually in the Northeast, visiting family, the first two weeks of October. But, travel records have Keyes flying from Seattle to Manchester, New Hampshire, on October 6th, two days after the postcard was postmarked from Eastern Maine. Here's what we know, transactionally, about that trip. On September 19th, Keyes bought tickets for himself and Sarah for a round-trip flight from Seattle to Manchester, departing October 6th and returning October 16th. Keyes had to get permission to leave the state for this trip, presumably due to a police-intervened domestic dispute with Tammy that occurred on March 1st. Keyes rented a red Kia Amante from the Manchester Airport's Enterprise Rental Car Agency. His credit card was charged on October 6th, he put 1,745 miles on that rental car. There's no record of how many days he took off work for this trip, nor when his last day at work before departing was. 
we can confirm he took September 22nd off from work, and that he was back in Nia Bay, based on phone pings, on October 21st. So, how the fuck did this happen? It's unclear what records the FBI pulled this information from. Did they pull flight manifests? Is this based merely on credit card receipts? They found flight itineraries in the search of his home. Was this one of them? My first assumption is that he originally booked a flight for the 6th, and then changed it at some point thereafter. But how do you explain the rental car transaction on the 6th? Unless he rented one car previously, then exchanged it for another on the 6th. Something he's done before. Either way, it seems way more likely that he's manipulating travel information than the post office. So let's go back to the utility of the lie. Was Keyes intentionally trying to make it look like he didn't arrive in the Northeast until several days after he actually arrived? And if so, what does that mean? Well, two people went missing in the days preceding his alleged October 6th arrival, both of whom disappeared from areas very familiar to Israel Keyes. On October 3rd, 2004, Jerry Smith disappeared from the rural town of Poquag, New York, on the edge of the West Mountain State Forest. According to the Charlie Project, Jerry was last seen at around 1 o'clock that afternoon, after he left a facility for disabled veterans on the 100 block of Greenhaven Road. Jerry was a 5'9", 150-pound black veteran who suffered from schizophrenia. He was 62 years old at the time of his disappearance. His case received very little media attention, presumably because of all the things I just mentioned. And there is very little information about his case. We do know that his wallet disappeared with him, and local law enforcement believe he is deceased. Jeffrey Wayne Bowen disappeared from Wilder, Vermont on October 2nd that year. Bowen was 42 years old and approximately 6 foot 2 and 230 pounds when he disappeared. He was last seen at his home on Hartford Avenue, just 1,000 feet from the Connecticut River and the New Hampshire state line. Much like with Jerry Smith, very little is known about Bowen's disappearance. However, there is a possible reference to Bowen's disappearance within the Namus 44. Rupinder Goraya disappeared from Fort Myers, Florida on October 2nd of 2007. So different year, but same date. And as we covered previously, Keyes has no firm whereabouts on October 2nd of 2007, but Goraya's husband was found guilty of her murder with some pretty compelling evidence. Additionally, Wilder, Vermont is directly en route from Manchester, New Hampshire, to Keyes' cabin in Constable. And then there's this. And uh, you, you told me the people in Vermont, they're not going to be looking for any other crimes in Vermont, right? No. So when I talk to them, I can tell them that? Yeah. Nope, it's just... Uh... 
No, that I mean, the, yeah, like I say, back to the couriers. That's that's as far back as we're going. So, <laughs> well, that's a different. I mean, that's fine if you want to. If that's what you want to do, but I, but I, when I had asked you last time, the people in Vermont. I said there aren't any more bodies in Vermont. Okay. Any other significant crimes that they need to be concerned about? Not at the time of the couriers, no. Well. So. So does that mean that the bodies aren't in Vermont? But they might have been. There might I'm be not going to talk about anything before the couriers. But you can't blame. You trying. You're trying though, aren't you? Uh, we're, we're trying to put a put a context in what we're dealing with. From no, I think we got enough to deal with right now. And like I say, in a couple of weeks, you know, there's a lot of other things we need to start talking about too. So. All right. Fair enough. And that, to me, sounds like Keyes abducted someone from Vermont and buried them in another state at some point prior to the courier's abduction and murder. For example, perhaps he abducted Jeffrey Wayne Bowen on a date that comes up in Keyes' Name is 44, from Vermont, just a mile away from the New Hampshire state line, on a highway Keyes knew incredibly well, in a heavily forested area, and then he murdered and buried him in New Hampshire, so there's no other bodies in Vermont. On his way back to Smyrna, Maine, where he made sure to sit down and write a postcard that would place him 400 miles away. And the case, as Keyes emphasized, got little to no media attention. Regardless of whether Keyes was involved in Bowen's murder or not, it is clear he actively and successfully pursued manipulating his perceived whereabouts. As was the case when he was fishing in both Kenai, Alaska and Wyoming on the same day, and when he was simultaneously working in Nia Bay and staying in a hotel in Anchorage, among many other previously mentioned examples. Which takes me back to that weird North Dakota trip, and a case that's been bugging me since very early into my Keys research. On October 24th, 2008, Keys flew from Anchorage to Seattle. The next morning, he flew from Seattle to Grand Forks, North Dakota a place there's no record of him traveling to prior or since. After landing in Grand Forks, Keyes goes off-grid for five days, and then he turns up at the Phoenix airport, flying into San Francisco. As we've previously discussed, this trip makes no sense. Keyes is dark the whole time. There's no record of him getting a car, and there's no missing people anywhere in the area between his arrival and departure airports. Now, initially, I posited that perhaps this trip was a means for Keyes to get to or place his Green River, Wyoming kill kit. But why go to such great lengths to conceal what is essentially not a visible crime? especially when we consider what happened with his conflicting travel records and postcard in 2004. What if Keyes flew to North Dakota simply to place himself somewhere he wasn't? 
there is a case that screams of keys. A case I've always written off because the missing person disappeared while Keys was, allegedly, somewhere between North Dakota and Arizona. But in all actuality, we have no idea where Keys was on October 27th of 2008. He could have been just about anywhere. But perhaps, considering he could have been anywhere, he was exactly where people would least expect him to be. Anchorage. Sheila Kathleen McBroom, who went by Kathleen, was a Mormon blogger living in Anchorage when she disappeared while driving along a rural highway south of the city early morning October 27th of 2008. But the events precipitating Kathleen's disappearance began a year and a half prior. Just two weeks, in fact, after Keyes arrived in Alaska. Kathleen's name has come up a lot in my research. Which makes sense. She disappeared just 39 miles from Keyes' home on Spur Lane. And there are some other factors in her disappearance which make linking it to Keyes pretty reasonable. But because of Keyes' North Dakota trip, I always discounted her as a potential victim. And yet, her name kept coming up. And her story stayed with me. And then last month, I got an email from her daughter, who over the last 11 years, had become convinced Keyes had abducted her mother. And her evidence, while circumstantial, was incredibly compelling. Kathleen was a devout Mormon, who credited the Church of Latter-day Saints with saving her life. Kathleen was so devout that she started writing a blog called So Grateful to be Mormon. And as that blog grew, so did her writing muscles. And on it, she started writing about her other passion, true crime. Kathleen attended the Brayton Ward of the Anchorage LDS Church, and that's where this story begins. On April 22, 2007, the chapel adjacent to her temple caught fire at some time around 4 a.m. The fire spread quickly, and within minutes, the entire chapel was up in flames, and it burned for much of the morning. Kathleen was so distraught over the fire that she drove to the temple and watched her chapel slowly burn to the ground. Investigators were never able to determine the cause of the fire, but didn't immediately suspect foul play. In the days following, Kathleen commented on a local online article covering the fire. And someone by the name of Judith responded to her comment, stating, so grateful to be anonymous, snicker. The comment was eerie both because it was directed at Kathleen and opened with the phrase, so grateful, which appeared to be referencing her blog. In the year following the fire, Kathleen's life was pretty normal. She continued blogging about her faith and started writing a true crime novel. But in the months preceding her disappearance, Kathleen had three experiences that could have directly impacted her disappearance. 
The first was a new job she started, which, by all reports, seemed like a dream job. At first. Unfortunately, it was anything but. Kathleen's boss was aggressive and unkind, and it began taking a toll on her. Her blog posts changed from upbeat and grateful to overwhelmed and struggling. Her daughter believes Kathleen was at her breaking point and considering quitting the job, despite the financial implications it would have on her family. Around the same time, Kathleen began emailing with a troubled man who was questioning his faith. The man had contacted her through her blog. And amid her own struggles, Kathleen did her best to counsel the unknown man. And then, just two weeks prior to her disappearance, and well over a year after the initial post and article, Judith posted another reply to Kathleen's comment about the chapel fire. This time, Judith wrote, Remember what Judith said? Are you still pining over what you lost? On the morning of October 28th, Kathleen left for work at her normal time. However, she wasn't dressed like she was going to work, and she seemed to have a look of hopelessness on her face as she walked out the door. She seemed out of it. She never arrived at work that morning. Instead, she was pulled over on Alaska Route 1, six miles south of Girdwood, Alaska, and over 42 miles in the opposite direction from her job at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in downtown Anchorage. Kathleen had been reported by several drivers to be drunk driving. She was repeatedly veering into the guardrails along the highway and driving erratically. She was pulled over by a state trooper at 8.30 a.m. and given a sobriety test, which she passed. The trooper suggested Kathleen stay put and take a nap before moving on. Kathleen agreed that this was a good idea, and she was never seen again. Four days later, Kathleen's car was found parked along Alaska Route 1 at the Rainbow Trailhead approximately 26 miles northwest from where she was pulled over and last seen. The car had very little damage, no note, and all of her belongings appeared to be inside. Police initially believed Kathleen was a victim of suicide. And they weren't the only ones. When Kathleen's daughter was able to reach out to the man Kathleen had been counseling over email, he wrote that, Kathleen had recently emailed him to say that she had finally made her decision. He never clarified what that might mean, and never responded to further emails from Kathleen's family. And initially, her daughter thought that that was her admission to suicide. But Kathleen's family was vehement that despite being overwhelmed at her job, she was actually the happiest she had been in quite some time. She'd begun dieting and working out, and recently lost 27 pounds. Her teenage daughter had just returned home from a year-long treatment out of state, and Kathleen was ecstatic over her return. And over the years, when a body never turned up, local law enforcement seemed to change their tune. 
The case remains open, but is now classified as missing under unclear circumstances. You may remember from episode 10 of this season that a female truck driver reported that in the summer of 2010, she encountered Keys at a rest stop somewhere near Cooper Landing, Alaska. And then, approximately 100 miles away, when she was pulled over along the highway to Knapp, Keys knocked on her truck window. Her dog lunged from the back seat toward Keys and quickly scared him off. Well, both of her encounters with Keys were on Alaska Route 1. And according to the distance she reported, that second encounter occurred within five miles of where Kathleen's car was found. And the Rainbow Trailhead? It's at the southern tip of Chugash State Park where Keyes would eventually hide a kill kit and admit to staking out roads while target practicing. Even Girdwood is a place familiar to Keyes. He and Kimberly went there often. To festivals, to ski, to camp, to hike, and to fish. But I mean, when I first started looking at places uh <laughs> I was I've actually been looking for a while like when I was in Vermont I was looking for a church to burn that's what I really wanted to do and then when I was in Texas I was I was looking at a lot of churches too but Why is that? oh just that's like a personal thing <laughs> I had it in my mind that I was going to start using churches yeah, and I think that's when it started. Um, just kept checking back on the story and kind of getting a kick out of the different things that the investigators would say. Um, knowing if they're right or wrong. And then... Or knowing that they're wrong, you like that? Yeah, and um, seeing the difference, because obviously, I mean, I know what happened, seeing the difference from their perspective versus my perspective, and uh, and then on top of that, when people would read the news story, then they, you know, everybody wants to comment on it, like their th <laughs> theories of what happened, and so I got really hooked on that, too, because um, it was entertaining to me, I guess. And, Did you join in on any of those? Did you comment Yeah. On This episode was written, produced, and researched by me, your host, Josh Hallmark, with investigation tips from Michelle Tooker and Elise M. Research sources include The Charlie Project, NamUs, the United States Census Bureau, Vox, and OurBlackGirls.com. Special thanks to Pat Brown for his insight into serial killers and race. Thank you to True Crime Bullshit's newest Patreon supporter, Shay W. If you'd like to support this one-man show, go to patreon.com slash truecrimebs. This episode featured music by William Hellfire, Radical Face, Laban, 
Lee Rosevere, and Sergei Cheremisinov. 